church. My pastor's kid. Once you see how the sausage is made, sometimes you're kind of sick of it. So I'm kind of sick of the church. In the process of teaching a class on the doctrine of the church, I fell in love with the church as the great body of Jesus Christ. And, and, and so one afternoon, I was bored at work. I wrote a letter to Covenant College uh, on top of Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And I said to them, somebody should start a program that would help us to think about poverty in a more holistic and biblical way. And I had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> Somebody should start a center that equips churches to the body of the kingdom and all that it entails. And I don't know what I meant. I, I, I guess I meant me, but not really. Or I, I don't know what I was thinking. I was bored at work. And so the college said, come on down. And, and, and I went, and uh, 21 years later, I'm still there. Very grateful for that experience. And, and so we've been able to start an undergraduate program in economics and community development. And also the Chalmers Center, which is a church equipping organization with churches across the U.S. and around the world to try to work amongst the poor in ways that could restore the poor to all God has created them to be. There's a lot of excitement these days about the relationship of the church to economic life, as evidenced by this conference. We have the faith and work movement. We've got people seeking the common good. We've got social entrepreneurship happening. We've got business as missions. At the heart of much of this is a rediscovery that Christ is indeed Lord of all, so that work and business are meaningful and might even have eternal significance. I find all of this very encouraging, but I'm also concerned about two things. And here's those two things. The first is this. I think this conversation, conversation dramatically underestimates some of the deforming characteristics of our current economic system, the system that we are currently exporting to the rest of the world through the process of globalization. The second concern I have is this. I think the church is wholly unprepared to engage in the type of Christian formation necessary to help God's people to live faithfully in their economic lives. The end result being that as we try to encourage people to embrace work, perhaps all we're really doing is encouraging them to pursue the American dream. Now what's wrong with that? Well, consider this. <clears throat> now you're playing my turf. No, we, <laughs> no, we, we just died right <laughs> uh, The, the uh, blue line here shows What's happened to real income per capita from 1972 to the year 2008 in the United States? You can see that real income per capita has increased dramatically. In fact, uh, this goes back even further. We've actually seen a tripling of income per capita uh, throughout the post-World War II era. But then the red line shows people's, the average self-reported happiness of Americans. We want to ask Americans, how happy are you on a scale of 1 to 10, basically? And what you'll notice there is that uh, despite the fact that our incomes have been going up dramatically, we're actually not getting happier. In fact, there's some evidence that we're getting less happy. Now, some of you are a little bored already. I need you to understand something. To an economist, this is the equivalent of saying the resurrection didn't happen. <laughs> are you with me now? That's what that says to me. The resurrection didn't happen. It is completely inconceivable to me as an economist that we can experience rapid increases in income 
and yet not experience increases in happiness. If you look at just the more recent year from 2006 to 2016, you'll actually see a fairly dramatic decline in people's self-reported happiness. Now some could argue, that, as I would, that these are pretty subjective kinds of things. I mean, I'm Dutch. If you ask me how happy I am, I mean, <laughs> happiness isn't in the DNA. <laughs> but if you look at a whole range of more objective measures of overall well-being, we are seeing an overall decline. Do you realize that life expectancy is actually declining in America right now? Let me give you another example. There's been a rapid increase in various kinds of mental illness in the United States through, throughout the post-World War II era, and even going back further than that to the 1930s. This just shows you, uh, this is a, 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 a diagram showing uh, depression scores of college students from 1938 to 2007. The rate of suicide for Americans under the age of 24 increased by 137% from 1950 to 1999. Now while there's no single cause for these kinds of trends, I believe that there are both strong theological and empirical reasons to believe that the current form of global capitalism that we're exporting to the world is at least partly to blame. Now I'll be careful here. I'm not arguing for a rejection of market-based economies in favor of high degrees of government intervention. The track record of those is far from stellar. Nor am I arguing the spread of Western capitalism is all bad. I study poverty. Do you realize that the, that the uh, poverty rate in the world, the number of people, the percentage of the world living below the $1.90 poverty line has decreased by 50% over the past 25 years. It's one of the most remarkable accomplishments in all human history. In 25 years, the poverty rate has been cut in half, and research suggests it's largely due to the spread of global markets. I'm not against markets, I'm not against capitalism. But what I am saying to us is this. I think we need to pursue a much bigger and much more radical agenda than simply trying to get Christians to believe that work and business are meaningful. And we need to do this by pressing into two of the themes that we heard last night from our brother, who is a Wesleyan. Wow, I learned something from Wesleyan last night. It was brilliant. I have to repent of some things. The first is this. That was supposed to be funny. It was okay. Some of my best friends are Wesleyans. It's okay. We heard two things last night I think we need to really press into. The first is this that one of the main contributions that the church has to offer in this space is a vision of what it means to be human. That's the whole ball of wax. What does it mean to be human? Secondly, I think we need to see the church, as our brother mentioned last night, as an incubator of new ways of promoting true humanness in economic life. So let's go back to the first one. What is the biblical vision of being human, and how does this contrast with the view that's out there in mainstream economics? So very, very quickly, I think we, we, we believe that the Bible teaches that human beings are a body and a soul. The soul can further be uh, uh, described as having a mind, affections, and will. 
uh, all which are highly related. And we also believe that the soul and the body are highly integrated. We are, in the words of one theologian, psychosomatic beings. Our bodies and our souls are highly interrelated. Now that, that little truth that most of you learned in Sunday school is completely antithetical to the entire understanding of what a human being is and nation economics has. You know a lot to contribute. Now the scriptures also suggest that we don't live in a vacuum, that human beings are wired for relationship. We bear the image of God Almighty God, God's inherently a relational being, and as this image bears, we are wired for relationship. The scriptures suggest there's four key relationships for each human being. We're wired for communing with God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden temple. We're wired for relationship with ourselves, our self-image, our self-concept, to see ourselves speak with dignity and worth. We're wired for relationship with others, deep community. And finally, we're wired for a relationship with the rest of creation, to preserve and protect the creation, but also to unfold and unpack it. So how can you capture that relational dimension? As an economist, I've been taught that it matters if you put it into an equation or into a figure. So here's my attempt to capture what a human being is. The human being is a tire. True human flourishing is to be a whole tire. True human flourishing is when our mind, our affections, our wills, our bodies are rightly related to God, self, others, and the rest of creation. Not tires, people that are connected. If, 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 if you remove one spoke from a tire, it ripples the whole thing. Hence, unemployment would be removing the spoke with respect to creation. Now, what's going to happen to a tire when a spoke is missing as the tire rolls through life? What's going to happen? Pressure is going to be put on the other spokes. Pressure is going to be put on a relationship with God, self, and others when we are having a missing spoke with creation. It's going to drive right down into the mind, the affections, the will, and the body. We're highly interconnected beings. Secondly, I want to point out to you there's something about a tire that's very important, and that's this. A tire can be shaped by outside circumstances, like the one in Tampa that he gave you. A tire has structure, but can also be shaped by the context and environment it's in. When a tire hits a pothole in the road, not only does that create a bumpy ride, it actually deforms the tire. Broken systems actually deform the human being. There's research that suggests that those who have been the victims of social oppression actually internalize the lies of their oppressors and they start to believe them. Research has been done in which they've taken Filipino Americans who've been heavily discriminated against and they've shown them images of Caucasian American culture and images of Filipino culture. And their brains registered negative responses to their own culture and positive responses to white culture in ways that are automatic and often unknown and uncontrolled. The external environment deeply rewires us as human beings. Now, we are to take our personhood, ourselves, and to fulfill our calling as image bearers. We, as image bearers, reflect, we mirror 
whatever we're worshiping. I'm going to take three things here as being truth. I think you can agree with these. The first of this. All human beings are always worshiping. We are always worshiping something. Secondly, human beings are transformed into the image of whatever God we are worshiping. And thirdly, human beings create culture in our own image. Three biblical truths. Human beings are always worshiping something. We are transformed into the image of whatever God we're worshiping. And then we then create culture in our own image. Now, how does this actually happen? What is the mechanism through which human beings are transformed into the image of whatever uh, we are worshiping? I have found some help, uh, some helpful insights from uh, those who are involved in virtue ethics. And very, very quickly, the idea is this, that every community has a shaping narrative, that the gods that we are worshiping give us some purpose, uh, some goal for life, some, some objectives that we are trying to pursue as a community, and some suggestion for how we can achieve those objectives. Those shaping narratives result in practices that we engage in daily, formative practices because they actually shape us. The community encourages us, us to engage in these practices to achieve the community's goals. Over time, those practices get institutionalized in the systems, the institutions, and policies of the community, those institutions then embody, embody the shaping narrative and actually perpetuate them across time. So that when one is born into the community, one is born into a culture whose institutions and policies, whose shaping narratives, and whose practices push them and their character, shape them and their character to live and practice in ways that achieve the community goals. In other words, our individual characters are shaped by the narratives, institutions, policies, and formative practices of our communities. Let's take this basic understanding of human beings and of how we are shaped and apply it to economic life now. What I want to do is discuss very quickly here mainstream economic thought. Now, as I do this, I need to clarify some things. The, 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 there are lots of different schools of thought out there, and many of you are reading in various schools of thought. What I need you to understand is that uh, Western economics, as it's taught in uh, our universities and colleges, is almost 100% in the space of what's called neoclassical economics. Some of you are reading other streams of thought, and that's great. I need you to understand that those are not the streams of thought that are shaping academia that are used to train our students. So some of you, for example, have narratives about what the market can accomplish. Some of you, for example, like uh, Michael Novak. That's fine. That's not what anybody's reading who's going and studying economics. There's a particular set of narratives that they are learning that's not part of what Michael Novak is talking about. When you go to the Acton Institute, that's not what people are talking about when they take principles of microeconomics. It's a different narrative. Very quickly, at the core of neoclassical economics is the positive normative distinction. It's found in the first chapter of every textbook. Positive statements, it's asserted, are statements that simply describe the way things really are. Everybody can agree on positive statements, it's argued. Whether you're a Muslim, a Hindu, a Jew, an atheist, agnostic, we can all agree that certain things are true. 
The silly is very high. Brian Pickard's very good looking. Things that are incontrovertibly true. But then there's normative statements, things, things that describe what things should be or ought to be. All students should study hard. The Green Bay Packers should get a better general manager. Those kinds of ought or should things that involve norms and value judgments. Like, here's what I need you to understand. Economists claim that they're not involved in normative at all. That's not what we're doing. We don't have any normative perspective at all, says the discipline. All we're doing is describing the way things really are. Some of you are worried about sacred secular uh, 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 dichotomies. I have a PhD in sacred secular dichotomies. Now, folks, I can't imagine to anybody in this room who believes in that. Most unbelievers don't even believe in that. My discipline holds to this for dear life. But folks, we cheat all the time. We're constantly saying free trade is good. Minimum wages are bad. Why? Because we have an implicit ethical standard. And that's why this discipline is so terrifying. Because we take 18-year-olds and we tell them it's all neutral, it's all neutral, it's all neutral, and we slip in a worldview. Are you tracking with me? So here's some of the facts. Right? There's, a, there's a, some, we would call these presuppositions in theological terms. But in my discipline, these are the facts of the discipline. They're incontrovertibly true. They're not questioned. You can't question them. They are clearly true. The first is this, the assumption of homo economicus. Human beings are autonomous, rational, self-interested, impervious material beings. There's a lot in there. We're autonomous. We're not built for relationship. We're islands. We're rational. Yeah, meet my in-laws, all right? <laughs> We're rational beings. We reduce the human to the mind. We are self-interested. We are always pursuing our own self-interest. We're impervious. Remember how I said the tire, the, the, the human being in a biblical perspective, can be shaped by outside influences. In economics, the human being isn't shaped by outside influences. Our, our, our circumstances can be changed. If our wages go up, that's a better circumstance. But it doesn't change who we are internally. That's fixed from birth. And we are material beings. There's no spiritual. We are rational, consuming, material beings. Okay, I had to get the equation in here. Okay. This is often presented in, in equation terms, and the idea here is that when you get out of bed Monday morning, what you are doing is you're maximizing your utility, you're maximizing your happiness. Everybody's doing this all the time. You're maximizing your utility, your happiness, typically as a function, it doesn't have to be this way, it's typically presented this way, as a function of two things, consumption and leisure. As consumption goes up, you're happier. As leisure goes up, you're happier. And God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 128, be fruitful by going to the beach and hanging out like a lush all day long. That's what my discipline is saying. That's at the core of it. 
This is human flourishing in my discipline. The only thing that constrains the human being from achieving nirvana is a budget constraint. And so why is economic growth good? It's because economic growth gives you more income, more income and enables you to enjoy more consumption, more leisure. That's the story. There's some antithesis between this and what I was taught in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm a pastor's kid. Every night, Daddy pulled out the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Dessert was contingent upon performance. <laughs> and the first question was, what is man's chief end? And I gotta tell you, why it's a man's chief end is to maximize his consumption of leisure to subject to his budget constraint. There would not have been a lot of butter for ice cream for dessert that night. <laughs> now it gets worse. How you with me? I'm, just, I'm already out of time. Here we go. Fast. Here we go. This is another fact of economics, guys. This is not a presupposition in the way that it's presented. This is a fact that every human being can agree on. That's this, the idea of efficiency. Efficiency is better. Here's where, okay, so we don't believe in more of the statements, but we are making one right now. We don't believe in normative, except for this one, because everybody can agree this one's, this one's okay. That's how literally the whole is written. We don't believe in normative, except for this one, because everybody agrees on this one. Economic policy A is more efficient than economic policy B if policy A allows for more mutually beneficial transactions to take place. So minimum wages or not, let's figure out what that will do to the number of mutually beneficial transactions. Environmental policy, good or bad, let's figure out what that will do to the number of mutually beneficial Tariffs, let's figure out what that does the number of mutually this is the, the metric. This is the ethical standard of the discipline. What do you think of that one? Well, here's the thing. Who decides whether or not the transaction is mutually beneficial? It's the two autonomous, rational, self-interested, material agents involved in economic exchange. It's homo economicus. So, should you two brothers trade, we have two homo economicuses, and they will decide whether or not that trade is good or not, and who are we as outsiders to that to comment on it? Hey, this is easy to shoot down, pornography. It's not a mutually beneficial transaction, but you have two consenting adults agreeing to the trade. Cocaine, it's easy. Two consenting adults agreeing to the trade. The problem will stop there. Even in transactions that are not immoral, the value attributed to everything, to apples and oranges, to capital and labor, is determined by Homo economicus imposing his or her value on those items. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is that the god of neoclassical economics is Homo economicus. The god of neoclassical economics is homo economics. Now, human beings are transformed into the image of whatever god we are worshiping. 
If I had more time, I'm already past time, I would suggest to you that the shaping narrative of mainstream economics, of surveying home economics, the institutions and policies that have been created around that, the formative practices that emerge from that, are actually reshaping human beings into the image of homo economicus, a material, autonomous, self-interested being. Let me just give you an example. What do you think happens to 18-year-olds when they take economics classes that say the following to them? Everybody's pursuing their own self-interest. That's just the way it is. Everybody's pursuing their own self-interest. That's just the way it is. There's research that suggests that when you say that over and over again to 18-year-olds, by the time they're 22, they actually become more self-interested, more individualistic, and more materialistic. It's a very dangerous narrative. I would submit to the process of deformation is well underway, and that's what's contributing to the rapid increases in mental illness that we're experiencing. I can't prove this to you, but I want to point out to you four empirical things that people have found, as I should close to very quickly. There's evidence suggesting that materialistic messages and modeling does, in fact, make people more individualistic and materialistic. And the added evidence there is pretty strong. Number two, there's evidence that Americans have become more individualistic and more materialistic throughout the post-World War II era as economic activity has expanded. Number three, there's overwhelming evidence that individualism and materialism lead to lower levels of happiness in a physical and mental health. And finally, there's evidence that globalization is spreading this deformation throughout the world. Take the example of China. It actually turns out that happiness declined in China throughout their period of rapid economic growth, so most observers actually believe that the Chinese are less happy today than they were before they experienced the growth that they're experiencing right now. So what's the solution? The church is called to embody a different economy. And I have just the solution for you. There's a book coming out in April. There's a book coming out in April that's primarily written by two friends of mine, I'm kind of along for the ride, called Practicing the King's Economy, Honoring Jesus and How We Work, Earn, Spend, Save, and Give. It combines theological reflection with suggested practices <coughs> that are trying to equip the church to be able to do the second thing I mentioned earlier, to start to see itself as an incubator where we start to live out a different narrative, a different set of practices, and create a different set of institutions that are for the king's economy rather than for the economy of home and economics. I'll end there.
So it's the separation of, of, of spirit from body. It's also the separation of the mind from the heart and, and, and the will. It's it will evil and evil. And persons from each other because the core of your nightmare is isolation. Totally, totally. There's actually some, there, there is actually a psychologist. Uh, I, I, I see the this very quickly. What I present today is, is uh, explaining greater detail in a paper called Homo uh, Economicus versus Homo Amago Dei that's in the Journal of Markets and Morality, an issue that Greg um, uh, oversaw in uh, spring 2017. And it, it goes into greater detail. There's a psychologist who's looked at what are the conditions in uh, American corporations? When I'm talking about assembly line work right now, just what are the overall conditions in environment of the American corporation? These argue that the conditions in typical workplace are completely antithetical to what psychologists know are, are conducive to human well-being. Uh, I don't know the answer. But, but, but somehow it's less specialization, which is completely antithetical to the American right. So it, right. The good news is the robots are ready to do all that. 